Hello and welcome to another episode of Roy's Cast, the official podcast of the Ridings of Yorkshire Society. We are your hosts, Johnny Farley and Sam Wright, and today we're joined by Sophie Whittle, a historical linguist who is currently based at the Digital Humanities Institute at the University of Sheffield. Sophie, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Very welcome. We've been looking forward to this episode for a little while. It's been planned for, for a good few months. Yes. Uh, Sophie, to start us off, uh, tell us a bit about yourself. How did you get into this? Yeah, so um, I've been at the University of Sheffield since my undergrad. Um, so I think nearly about maybe about nine or ten years now. Um, I'm doing my PhD. I'm coming close to the end of my PhD um, in English language and linguistics, specifically historical linguistics. Um, and yes, recently passed my viva, so I'm really happy about that. Um, and my research generally focuses on the history of the English language, in particular the structure of the English language um, and why change happens. So in particular, um, why languages structures change over time um, and linking it to things such as language contact. So when um, two um, languages come into contact with one another as a result of things like invasions, um, settlements, um, influx of migrants, etc. Um, and how those um, settlers, how when they're learning the language, how that can influence change. Um, so it was a bit of a theory that I, that I came across in my second year of uni. Um, I had a really great lecturer who's now one of my supervisors. Um, and it's basically the theory that learners, um, when they're learning language, they make potential errors or innovations. And then that spreads within a community. And I was really intrigued by that theory. Um, especially because a lot of the previous theories are kind of just not really motivated why change happens. They kind of said, oh, there's like frequency differences in a particular language form. And then that slowly, gradually um, becomes another form. Um, and uh, they said that a lot of the change came from perhaps within um, a community rather than different communities coming into contact with one another. Um, so I was intrigued in that side of things. Um, and then I came across a particular phenomenon. Um, I won't go into too much detail about it just because it's, um, it's quite difficult to explain um, in, because we don't have like a, a, I suppose a, a level of consciousness about it. It's, it's something that has changed and that we use regularly. Um, but essentially, it was called verb second, and it's still in German today. Um, so one of the interesting things is that English lost the phenomenon. And um, say if I was going to use uh, modern words to be able to describe what it is, essentially it's if we had something at the beginning of the sentence, such as like an adverb, like quickly, and then you'd say, I went to the shops. But what we used to say was something like quickly went I to the shops. So that kind of verb in the second position in the sentence um, then became the third position in modern English. Um, so it's something that we, we always use these kinds of sentences today. We don't really know that, that that has changed in the history of the English language. So it's something that has been quite difficult for me to explain, um, especially because people are quite interested in how um, certain words are used in their accent or how um, perhaps place names have been influenced by Scandinavian languages. Um, so it's something that I quite struggle to talk about. Um, some people just kind of look at me like, oh, why would that be interesting? Um, 
but yeah, it's it's something that is quite a monumental change within the language's structure. And um, I've been looking more into the Scandinavian influences as well. Yeah, that, that's all. Um, that's really interesting, um, Sophie. I think one of the things that we were wanting to sort of talk a bit about today is is where these influences sort of blend in with, with where we are in particular in, in East Yorkshire and in Yorkshire as a whole, um, and those sorts of people that have, that have come over over the historical period and how they've influenced our local language, in particular our place names and things. So is that something you could talk a bit about? Yeah, definitely. So um, since we are on a Yorkshire podcast, um, I wanted to talk a little bit as well about how my research interacts with Yorkshire and how it is a bit of a hub for language change. Um, we don't have tons of evidence from that time period, um, especially in terms of structure. Um, with, there is a lot of evidence in terms of, like you say, place names, uh, words which come from Old Norse. Um, so a lot of the place names that end on BY and Thorpe, um, I think it might even be toffed as well I can't quite remember but there's a, a lot of those um there's evidence of a lot of those different place names across both um the north but also east midlands as well basically where the um north settlers came and stayed so yeah it's really interesting to see there's the lack of evidence there but it is interesting to see that there is possible routes to go down so in my own research there's a few yorkshire texts that i look at um in particular one of them it's a, quite a religious text and i think that is potentially an issue because it's clearly quite loaded with probably quite um, formulaic expressions there's quite a lot of repetition because of the the sermon um so it can be quite difficult to know whether that language is representative of the of the north at that point um, in particular yorkshire this is a yorkshire text um so one of the interesting things is yeah looking at all these different factors um and seeing whether they actually constitute evidence for that time and there's a bit of a skepticism in my field at the minute about whether scandinavia influenced the structure of the english language and um, we can obviously visibly see this in the place names as i've just mentioned but um it is interesting to look at the range of yorkshire texts that we have and the differences between them so the phenomenon that i just talked about um, which i look at it's known to be quite um, frequently used in the Middle English period. So that's around, I'd say, after the Norman Conquest, so around 1066. We say about from like 1100 to 1500. Um, and one of the interesting things is that um, this phenomenon is not particularly um, used quite frequently in the Middle English period. So looking at these Yorkshire texts and seeing the differences between them and other parts of um, the England at that time, and seeing that the, the North is using it quite frequently, but you can see as well, there's a lot of social mobility at that point. Um, and that kind of, you can see that in some of these Yorkshire texts. So some of them use it quite frequently, some of them not so frequently. And it's looking into the backgrounds of those authors and what they were doing at that time. So whether they were going to university, whether they were speaking to, to people high up in the courts, and they might have changed their language to suit the people that they were speaking with and the communities that they were, that they were part of. So even though it might not give us a lot of evidence that period, it does give us evidence for some of the social mobility that is happening at the time. So some of these Yorkshire texts are slightly lower in frequency, but it's because they've been, uh, they've had a job that has perhaps led them out of Yorkshire. They've then changed their language as a result. Um, and yeah, I, that's very much what we do today as well. It's, it's a good 
um, way to show how our language has developed, but also kind of the activities that we are also doing today and how languages, there's evidence today of a similar kind of thing happening. Yeah, that's a, it's a really interesting topic that you're sort of, you're bringing up there. And it's something I was going to ask as well. So you, you kind of jumped ahead of the question a bit. Um, and just about this whole, the use of evidence that you do have to hand and how it's usually these, these sort of religious texts or like more formal texts and how that causes some issue with how you're interpreting the actual language that they were speaking. And obviously, as you're saying about the use of words and the use of sentence structure, and I guess you kind of lose any opportunity to explore the dialect of the people speaking because pe people don't write in their dialect, do they? Modern day people, no one's writing books in, in how they speak when they speak at home. And yeah. just how, how are you, is that something you're looking at sort of contending with or is it something that's just impossible to do? Yeah, it's not the best thing. Um, so obviously with um, written text, it's not always how we speak, as you just said. It's difficult to know whether they're actually writing in something that they'd maybe they maybe speak some slightly different. Um, and as we've got today, we've got standard language versus the languages that we speak in everyday com communication. And this is kind of pre, so in the medieval period, you've got some sort of standardization, but it's pre any sort of, you've got grammarians who come in and try to standardize the language so they have specific rules that require you to speak and write a certain way and that's kind of still reflected in schools and how you should behave in the classroom but you know we all have accents so it's actually quite difficult to enforce that and actually probably a bit wrong um but with the um text that i'm looking at in the past it's the only thing we have access to so we kind of have to yeah take some of it with a pinch of salt um, but the fact that we have a bunch of texts from across England and they all differ in their use of these different features, it says something. And it's the fact that we can actually categorise each of these texts into different dialect areas is really interesting, um, purely because they're writing in a completely different way across all of England. So um, even though we don't have access to spoken data, there was not, no recording equipment back then. A lot of it was destroyed as well after the Norman Conquest. Um, we can still use written evidence. And one of the other imp uh, important things that I always teach my students is that written text, it potentially reflects an earlier spoken language because it takes some time for the actual language to be recorded. And what might happen in the early Middle English period is that you've got a bunch of texts that actually reflect earlier um, instantiations of writing. So actually, what you've got is um, a number of texts which actually might have been influenced by Norse, but it's coming through much later than it actually happened. So obviously it takes time for um, the settlers to kind of merge in their communities. Um, but yeah, essentially it's what we've got to work with. It's not the best, but there is evidence that there is variation across England and it's it's interesting to look at. Yeah, well, it sounds like you're just sort of doing um, verbal archaeology, essentially. It's kind of picking together the evidence from where you can find it and, and sort of trying to notice those those themes throughout. Um, is there any real sort of, because I'm not a medievalist, if you've listened to the podcast before, you know that I'm not one of the medievalist ones. Um, do you run into issues with reading these texts if they've been sort of put into that standardized Latin that sort of comes about in that period? And are you losing this character that the earlier ones have when they are all sort of put into this under the, the Catholic sort of group thing? Yeah, one of the interesting things is when we start to move away from Latin and you start to get more and more texts in what they called the vernacular at the time, which was English language. Um, 
So it's actually interesting when you start to see more of those English texts versus uh, Latin because people are actually, it's almost like a, quite a political statement. It's, you know, we're moving away from those traditional ways of recording and, and yeah, writing down um, our language to um, the more vernacular, which I suppose is the people rather than the courts, etc. It's the same with French as well, where you've got... Um, the, the courts are essentially people who speak French and English as a result of the Norman Conquest. So that's not the language of the people, but the texts that you have at that time might have actually pockets of French within them. Um, so it's it's difficult because you, the texts that you also have are not representative necessarily of the people. Um, but one of the interesting things, as I was mentioning earlier, about the fact that you've got texts that reflect earlier cases of perhaps spoken language is that in Old English you had a high variety which was um, people speaking um, like a yeah like Latin and, and, a, and a Old English which um, wasn't affected by Norse but then the low variety might have been because that was the what the people were speaking so um, when you start to see those later documents, they might have actually been reflecting an earlier period, which was the people rather than people high up in, in, in the leadership roles. But it's just in, in that switch to the more sort of vernacular people way, way of speaking and way of writing, is there, a, is there a pattern with how that emerges, how swift that transition from sort of the traditional Latin that they've been that that we've that you've seen for the years previous is there anywhere that adopts that faster than other places or is there a, is there a slow transition or is it quite a quick change to that sort of more people recognized way of speaking and way of writing yeah i'm not sure how much evidence there is of that from the medieval period just because of how much um, evidence we have access to from that time but you do probably start to see that a lot more in the northern communities the york, york yorkshire for example um where people are starting to write in a dialect and start to uh, write stories in and the characters speak a certain dialect. I have a friend actually that is currently working on um, a text which is really not well known at all but it's a character that adopts both a northern and a cockney accent which is really interesting. Um, so it's clearly clear that authors I'd say are probably around um, the modern English period um, that start to adopt a bit more of a yeah, a bit more of a dialect um, rather than working with this standard language. You know, as I mentioned before, the grammarians came in and tried to standardise language, but then you've got authors trying to play around with the language a bit more. Um, Geoffrey Chaucer, who I'll probably talk about in a bit, um, I'm laughing because um, my friends always say I talk about him. But um, <laughs> um, so when he um, started to be quite a prolific writer, he played around with language a lot more. Um, I know this doesn't really link to Yorkshire too much, but um, it's it's possible that he was potentially affected by Norse through his roots in Ipswich, um, so that East Anglian coast where um, Norse speakers settled, and he, he is known to write in an East Midlands character um, compared to perhaps the the people who were obsessed with Latin and French. Um, he was doing something that was against the grain, really. And he could be seen as quite a modern writer at that stage. So it's definitely possible to see these types of writers coming through. Um, it definitely happens a lot later. Um, but Geoffrey Chaucer could be one of the initial, I'd say, po poets who was doing it at that time. So building on what you were saying about Chaucer there and his 
almost sort of regionality from but where he came from and and how that has affected how he how he writes you've touched on a few times about the the regionality of this all and how that can be seen to have affected modern place names and modern dialects and things and well, we'll get on to it in a minute but before we get to this next point is it do you think there's any any evidence for there being similar perceptions of areas in the language used in that writing back then as there is with the language spoken now yeah i think there's definitely um ways in and i think especially now when you look for example i'm just bringing my own um, example in here but um when i moved to university people were quite um I suppose, I suppose quite negative about the whole accent and how it does seem quite cut off from Yorkshire so most people think the Yorkshire accent's quite endearing um this is just from like perception studies that people have done on in sociolinguistics but um whenever someone talks about Hull it's it's you know it's quite a a great like a bit of a yeah I'm not sure how to describe it but I'm thinking of you know on Lion King when there's the when there's the the the, the region that you can't go into it feels like that whenever you're speaking to someone um, and that's how I noticed it quite um, early on at university when I moved to Sheffield um, and I I feel like I've changed my accent as a result people whole listeners might not be able to hear much hull in my accent I mean my friends still can um, but I think I've got more of a broad Yorkshire accent now um, and it's very real, this kind of, um, this accommodation to other accents. It can be quite in a, in a positive way, you know, it's to communicate with your friends, but then in other ways it can be quite um, uh, a really sad thing actually in that you're, you're changing your accent based on how people perceive it. Um, and like I mentioned, there's tons of perception studies um, on accents and how people feel quite either proud of their accent and it, and it then shows up in things like a mug where it'll have the Yorkshire accent on it. Um, I know that for Hull, it's like going down road is like a huge thing. People, it's, it's really salient and, and the people actually speak about it. And um, as even though we don't have necessarily any evidence for this in the medieval period, we still have cases where perhaps people don't want to speak in a French language. So they'll purposely write in English because they don't like French people or that um, they want to be appear quite different to them. So even though there's no like perception studies that were done at that time, it's still quite evident in how an author might have a certain bias, for example. Um, but yeah, that's the kind of, even the same kinds of biases are definitely still around today. And I suppose that, the fact that the Hull accent is, I mean, I've encountered it as well, is, is quite protected and, and, and you know, beloved of the, of the city and, and its people. You know, when I come across with a Lincolnshire accent and start talking about Hull history and you get attacked for being like, how dare you speak with that accent <laughs> in the city? But does that make the Hull accent quite an interesting dialect to study because because it's so protected by its people and it, it's it maybe doesn't have as much of that sort of cross interaction that sort of altering the accent to suit different purposes. Does that make the whole accent specifically a bit more, I don't know, like true to its origins, if you like, and more like an interesting dialect to study? Yeah, and surprisingly, I feel it's not been studied as much as the Yorkshire accent in general. And I think even South Yorkshire, for example, has been studied quite a lot because you've got people like the Arctic Monkeys, Pulp, etc., that really bring it through the accent in their songs and that that's really interesting. People love it. Um, for example, Mardi Bum, etc. Um, with Hull, I, I think because it is such a... It is, well, it's a port, obviously, um, 
it becomes quite a, I suppose, it, it's cut off from the rest of Yorkshire. Um, but there's still such a rich cultural history there. And I feel like there is more to be done with linking up that historical background to the way people view Hull accent, the way people feel about when they, uh, how they feel about the accent when they speak it. Um, I feel like there's still that connection to be made. And it's definitely um, something that I've seen in academia is this lack of interdisciplinary um, research. And there's still more to be done in that, I think. And I think with the Hull accent as well, we obviously have this rich cultural history with the Civil War um, and this kind of show for democ democracy. And um, if anyone doesn't know, King Charles or his, his posse were stopped at um, Beverly Gate in Hull. Um, so the parliamentarians um, stopped him from coming into Hull. Um, that could be seen as quite a significant moment where people feel proud about where they live. Um, that's only one of many um, situations, obviously the Blitz and things like that, where people had to rebuild and put money into Hull after that. And and all of this kind of, all of this feeds into the kind of pride that people feel being in Hull. And I, I don't think that's researched enough. I think there are lots of um, great studies on Yorkshire. And I think there are a few people who've worked on the Hull accent. Um, one of them actually is in my department. He, um, I think it was part of a wider study, but he actually showed that um, people, when given a map and asked to map out various accents on this map of the UK, people actually, Hull people actually singled out Hull. No one else put Hull on the map. Everyone else didn't even put their own accent on the map. They might have just mapped out larger um, regions, but Hull were ones to actually show Hull on it on the map. And um, no, obviously know where it's located, but actually because they recognise it as quite a salient language. And I think they do tend to, I think it's the... Compared to Yorkshire generally, I feel like Hull has definitely preserved its language versus other areas which might have been affected from down south, uh, the Midlands, and been sandwiched between these larger cities compared to Hull. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good point. And is there, so part of that, I wonder if it comes from Hull's isolation, both sort of physically and in some ways opinion-based. Opinion uh, obviously, Hull's, you know, Sort of always described as being at the one end of a very long train line sort of thing uh for a very long time it, the old town was an island um again when the beverly gate was there and things like that and you've the the blockhouse built by henry the eighth um there's this sort of we're kind of on our own a little bit in the area and even when you go outside of hull i'm from hull i may not again sound even less yorkshire than than sophie does <laughs> even though i spent my entire life living in yorkshire um when you go anywhere just outside of hull like even into the surrounding east yorkshire the opinion on Hull is is so sort of severe in a lot of places. Um, obviously, there are lots of very welcoming people, but there's it's sort of almost seen as a, a bit of a, a black sheep to Yorkshire. So I wonder if that kind of um, externally imposed exile, as it were, uh, has affected our, our accent and affected the dialect of, of Hull and whether that's something that you've noticed in yeah, 100%. I think just going back to that, I feel like people from Beverly say they're from York rather than Hull, which is Hull is so much closer. But um, yeah, I definitely think that that is exter that externally imposed um, perception of us has potentially affected um, the way in which we feel about it. So the, the pride that we feel about our accent and um, obviously there's cases of people moving away and then their accent changing. But then, yeah, the outside opinion is huge as well and there are, are wide studies in linguistics that um 
you know, you see it often in the news as well, you know, rate the sexiest accents in the UK, holes usually at the bottom of the list and worst places to live, etc. I feel like, yeah, both the media, people talking in communities about the whole accent, that's definitely had an impact on it. And it's interesting that it's gone the other way, that we've not felt this kind of, oh, we need to talk about, talk like everyone else in Yorkshire. We've actually instead honed the accent and kind of made it our own and and obviously we'll still talk differently to our um to earlier generations so i speak very different to my to my nana who um says things like cowled and bane and even then i wasn't saying bane <laughs> i was saying bane instead of bane um that's the other thing is the the vowel sounds as well so different um to the rest of yorkshire i've been looking at how our vowel sounds differ from for example sheffield or sound is in our accent is more uh, it's this kind of you have the when you have vowel diagrams so um the the you have diagrams of the mouth our tongue is much uh, further forward than in yorkshire where it's much further back when we pronounce our sounds so things like that where our vowel sounds are so different and people will pick up on this in any anywhere in yorkshire even in just north of hull like you were saying and um just outside of Hull um so I think that's definitely it's very noticeable that we're different to the rest of Yorkshire and this this may be a a loaded maritime themed question but is it is it likely that part of Hull's dialect comes from its maritime connections rather than its inland connections because given we're quite as as Johnny said it's quite an isolated place in terms of the UK obviously in terms of its maritime connections Hull is a center point for a global trading network and has been for hundreds of years so I don't know if I wonder if, if you knew anything about if there's any maybe international or particularly port links that, that Hull's dialect takes from. So I know we particularly have got strong connections with like Holland and, and Dutch. So I don't know if there's any sort of like, not like maritime links in terms of the international links that might actually influence the accent because we've got more of a connection to those places than perhaps people that are 10 minutes down the road. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I was talking earlier about language contacts. So um, I don't know much about the Dutch side of things, although I've, I think I've heard a bit about sort of Frisian um, connections, but um, Hull probably would have been one of the first places for um, Norse invaders to to settle. Um, although I think it was, wasn't was called Hull at that point. I think they named it Wyke. So obviously you see this in things like place names. Um, in terms of sounds, I think it's definitely possible as well. I think there are definitely in Norse, in, in a lot of Scandina- Scandinavian languages today, and you could probably see it in Old Norse as well, um, the similar vowel sounds, um, these what we call monophthongs. Um, sorry, I'm not going into the ports here, but <laughs> um, these monophthongs, which are, are vowel sounds where we pronounce them very differently to the rest of Yorkshire, I think that was definitely affected by um, trade overseas, but also, yeah, as early as the medieval period with um, Norse settlers. Um, also, yeah, Dutch as well is probably quite similar. I think I noticed quite a, a few similarities with the vowel sounds. But yeah, there hasn't been, and it is something that I think I would like to look at eventually, is the the comparison with other languages and specifically Hull and not just the Yorkshire dialect as a whole. Um, I think there are definitely ways in, like I say, that the yeah the, there's so much to say about interdisciplinary research and and how that can impact how we view Hull as well and I think if we knew more about our our past we'd like people outside of Hull would be more proud of the accent as well yeah and <laughs> um, do you think maybe I mean we, we mentioned you know the interactions that happen at Beverly Gate is there a sense that preserving a local dialect is more from working class 
roots rather than having a, a top-down Queen's English sort of put onto you if if is is keeping your regional dialect a another form of sort of that rebellion against against that ideal and keeping keeping something that's yours rather than having something imposed on you. I don't know if that I know that's it's a massive part of Hull's you know Hull's rebel history, but I don't know if that impacts the way accents are kept or preserved particularly strongly in, in areas particularly like for, for example in the north. Yeah, definitely. And there's never going to be a situation where you have that top down approach in trying to um, say banish a language or, or, or accent or anything like that I mean as I mentioned before it's kind of imposed in schools where you have to speak a certain way and I remember being <laughs> being in school and and my teacher I believe at the time wasn't from Hull even though the whole class was from Hull um, she was saying it's road not road <laughs> um, I remember that really well um, and even though that wasn't necessarily enforced, you still get signs of that. And there's work by, I believe, Ian Cushing. He's doing a lot of work on um, prejudice in schools and discrimination. And obviously, we're talking from a privileged position here. I'm white, um, but this happens across um, racial um, cases case of race as well, um, where it happens to especially people of colour and people who have migrated over here. It happens to them a lot more. And going back to the whole accent, I think um, there's never going to be a way where we completely get rid of the whole accent, even though languages change all the time. And um, you can see that in other dialects where people don't speak um, the same as their ancestors um, as much. Um, language, that that's inevitable. But um, it's never going to be a case where people high up are going to be able to impose it because, yeah, the people on the ground are going to are going to speak how they, they speak in everyday interaction. And as much as we might need a standard for things like writing, obviously we're going back to those written documents, as I was mentioning earlier, there's still a standard for writing and, you know, you only get jobs if you write a decent application. But even in the interview, you can still speak in your accent and it's not going to, well, unless the, the people aren't very nice, it's not going to affect your way of getting a job. So this kind of imposing of, of a certain way of speaking in schools is not necessarily going to affect you in future life. And people, uh, yeah, uh, they're, they're not, they're not going to change their accent based on a top-down approach. Yeah. Um, one of the things I've been wondering about while you've been speaking, I was talking to some, some colleagues at, at work the other day and they were sort of, although I was born in Hull, my parents aren't from Hull, that's kind of why I have this weird accent. Uh, they are generational Hull-born, and they were talking about the distinction between East and West Hull accents. Is that something mm. you've ever really noticed? Because I, I, I've, I've never been able to pick up on it. I think you have to be sort of born and bred in, in the accent to notice any difference. And yeah, I noticed that massively. I remember I worked with someone who's from East Hull, and her accent was massively different to mine. I mean, I'm not from... I was born in Hull, but then maybe about five moved to just outside of Hull. So I think maybe those West villages in Hull and Beverly, etc. I think that that their accent is very different to centre of Hull and East Hull as well. And I do wonder if that is cases of class as we've been bringing up um, potentially and um, again, perception from people outside of Hull, um, more inland, um, which has an impact on the west versus the east accent yeah there's definitely a difference there again could be a bit of a class divide um and yeah i think 
that is definitely something I've I've noticed as well. I don't I can't put my finger on it, but you talk to anyone in Hull and they say they speak differently. And obviously the rugby doesn't help either. <laughs> um so yeah, I think that yeah, there's definitely a, a difference there. Yeah, um no th- thank you very much for that. Um Sophie, that's been really interesting and I'm I'm glad we finally were able to to get you down for a recording. Uh just before we start wrapping up, is is there anything that you've got coming up that you're you're sort of working on and what's your your current work that you're doing at the uh the digital humanities institute things like that yeah so i've started delving more into digital digital humanities which is which is good um and i'm hoping that it hopefully opens up more avenues um in digital humanities and looking at so what i'm looking at the minute is chaucer as i've brought up earlier (laughs) um and he um obviously has the canterbury tales what we're doing is we're creating a um edition a teaching edition based on this the pardoner's tale um it's quite an interesting story it's, it's it kind of un, uh, unpicks a lot of um modern um storytelling as well so it's about the three um rioters or um, taverners as they call and they go out find some gold because um, this old man has told him that they can get it from death um, they find this gold they've conspired to kill each other um, and that under, underpins a lot of stories so things like Harry Potter and um, the tale of the three brothers I think it is um, things like Assassin's Creed I think there's even something like that in it um, there's a lot of stories and one of the interesting things as well is that there are a lot of retellings of that story so it's not just the kind of white male approach to it it's the um there's the refugee tales which i think it's called um which um completely transforms the story so i think it's quite interesting to show um teachers and their students what they can do with this tale so part of it is digitizing the tale um by digitizing i also mean using machine learning and things like that We're using chat gpt to translate things um but then showing what they can do with that um and what avenues they can go down so it's not just looking at it from the same white lens um and there's also things to do with the partner um who tells this tale he's a could be seen as a queer figure Again, it's just finding ways, modern approaches um, to dealing with it. So it's really cool that I get to work on that um, and also speak with students about it and see what they think about it. So it's taken me quite away from the Yorkshire stuff, but I would like to go back to that at some point. Um, Maybe looking at uh, social media perceptions, perhaps, and that'll come under digital humanities. Um, I'm not sure where it'll take me, but yeah, I'm hoping to stay in that um, role for now and yeah, take it from there. Yeah, thank you for speaking to us today, Sophie. It's been really interesting. And um, as for your upcoming work, I, I think I speak for Roy's in that we're really excited to see how that goes for you. Um, just before we wrap up, is where, where can people follow what you're doing and, and see how you're getting on? So the projects that I'm working on, it's called the C21 Editions Project. Um, you can go onto the website. Uh, so it's the DHI at Sheffield University. Or you could go to our Twitter page, which is at DHI Chef um that's chef with one f um and yeah we're hoping to keep um, everyone updated on those web pages and the twitter profile and eventually we'll have an up um, and running edition for teachers and students but it'll be open access so anyone can look at it and learn a bit more about chaucer um and yeah thanks for having me on oh amazing you're very welcome as i said very glad to have had you on finally uh yeah thank you very much and thank you all for listening see you on the next episode